Hey everyone, and welcome to season three of the show. This is your host, me, Matthew Kirby, and I can't believe we've come this far with our honest conversations, and we can't stop now. We are continuing to evolve and adjust to have those real conversations that we so desperately need. To my fans, thank you for your continued love and support of the show. To my first timers, hey y'all, thank you for joining us. We have some big changes on the horizon, ooh-wee, and I can't wait to spill the tea. In the meantime, in between time, thank you for listening and enjoy today's episode. All right, you can put me back on mute. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Honest Human Resources Podcast. This is your host, you know how I do it, me, Matthew Kirby. And today we're going to talk about an awesome topic, not only just speaking to a a brilliant individual, but also really getting into this idea of not even the why, but just the very fact on how women are working unicorns or unicorns in the workplace. So I'm excited about not only talking about this topic, I recently read an article about this and I'm so happy to have that author here on the show today, but you know how I do. Let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. Dr. Sierra Graham is an experienced student affairs professional, having served in roles in the following career areas, career counseling and advising, diversity, equity and inclusion, college admissions, and student conduct. She also has teaching experience at both the high school and college level. She is the current director of a satellite campus, the Everett Community College East County Campus in Moreau, Washington. Dr. Graham was born and raised in Seattle, Washington, received both her bachelor's and master's degrees from Washington State University and has a PhD in sociology from the University of Cincinnati. In February of 2019, Dr. Graham was named the top four emerging leader of Snohomish County, an award given by the Herald Business Journal, Economic Alliance, Snohomish County, and Leadership Snohomish County. Dr. Graham can be described as a visionary, an innovator, a change maker, and a person with many passion projects. She is deeply committed to addressing issues that impact women of color in the workplace and has written about many of these issues as a columnist for the Seattle Times. She has also written articles on preventing burnout as a millennial woman for organizations like Career Contessa and navigating and excelling in a new position for the Black Career Women's Network. While balancing the demands of a full-time job, She is also the founding president for the Everett Community American Association of Women in Community Colleges Chapter, an organization devoted to supporting the personal and professional needs of women at community colleges and serves on several nonprofit boards. In her free time, Dr. Graham enjoys reading books, cooking, taking walks, and Netflix binging and DIY arts and crafts projects. Welcome everyone to the show. Hey, Dr. Graham, how you doing? 
I am doing well. Yeah, really happy and grateful um, to be a part of this podcast and um, looking forward to, uh, you know, speaking to the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And shout out to your bio. I was reading and saying this thing and I was like, ooh, this is a mouthful of meat and potatoes right here. Let me go through this. So thank you for sending that. I think this gives people a really good um, overview of who you are. But we're going to talk about, you know, not only just who you are outside of this bio that I read, but also who you are as it relates to and essentially being one of those working unicorns. Like I'm, I'm extremely excited that you described it this way. But before we get into that, I see you watch a lot of Netflix nowadays. What are you binging right now? What are you watching? Oh, man. Um, So I'm really into Ozark. Um, I'm actually re-binging season one and two um, and start on season three. (laughs) Okay. Um, I won't ruin it for you, but. Yeah, please don't. Please don't. Yeah. Yeah, I won't ruin Um, it for you. But no, I love Ozark. (laughs) <laughs> and I would say, yeah, that's that's what's taking up the majority of my time on Netflix right now. Okay, perfect. No, you can't go wrong with it for sure. So no, that um, you know, always looking for something new to watch, and Ozarks was definitely one of them. But before we hijack this episode and just talk about Netflix for the whole time, let's get into and I normally ask this to all of my co-hosts, guests, who's ever on the show. But I'm going to ask you this. How are you a human resource? Yeah, well, you know, I think this is such a great question. And honestly, you know, I think working in higher education, naturally, I think I just have this kind of helping persona, you know, um, that really is my main kind of personal and professional mission is to help and support students. But I, I really had to think about this. Uh, question beyond the context of my own job. Um, so I would say personally, uh, first and foremost, you know, I am a, I'm a child of God. I was raised in a, in a Baptist church. Um, I come from a long family of ushers. And so I think with, um, you know, that mentality, there just becomes this attitude for help and service, paying it forward, um, and this really has informed my attitude for my, um, my professional life. Um, you know, I come from a working class family. My mom worked um, as a grocery store cashier for the majority of my young adult life. And then my dad worked as a machinist. Uh, neither, neither of my parents have a college education. And so I think with that, you know, um, They've taught me the value of hard work and perseverance, but just also being very grateful for um, any success that you experience and the position that you're in. Um, And they really instilled in me that, you know, when you get to a certain point of success, you really need to kind of look behind and or or look, you know, alongside of you and, and really realize who can you help and support. So Um, I've really had a passion for writing. Um, I've been doing this for quite some time. You know, it started when I was an adolescent writing in a journal and and now it's developed into being a columnist for the Seattle Times. So, you know, I really see my writing as an opportunity to to really validate the experiences of other um, 
women of color um, in professional positions. And so I'm grateful that they have provided me the platform to be able to do that. Um, and then I am a first generation college student. So the first in my family to pursue a bachelor's degree, a master's and a PhD. And so I think, you know, when you hold a PhD, you really become um, less of a, I guess, a passive recipient of knowledge and you really begin to kind of um, curate or create your own knowledge. And so that's really how mm -hmm. self um, kind of giving back is um, through writing and being able to um, just use my, my PhD studies to um, share different topics uh, with the world. No, and I, I think that that's a million and one ways of not only saying and telling us how you are that human resource, but really just kind of breaking it down and giving people that kind of overview of, you know, where you came from, you know, you just, you just wasn't a doctor overnight and abracadabra. And, um, you know, I love a good, I love a good humble beginnings for sure, because it, it reminds me of, you know, a lot of different ways about how I came up too. Now I got to ask you real quick. So since your family, you know, was a long line of ushers and everything, whenever the churches and stuff do open up again, because I remember when I used to go to church, you know, and the mushers used to pack us in tight. Now you think social distancing is going to be something that ushers going to have to get used to. Cause you know, you tried to used to get space in between folks and the ushers be like, move on down, move on down, down to the middle. So <laughs> what's your, what's your take on that real quick when things opened up? Oh, this is such a, such a funny question. Um, <laughs> no, so the, the church that I currently go to, um, and it's been my childhood church, uh, they're doing services online. And yeah, churches open up. I have no idea what it's, what it's going to look like. Um, you know, I, this might be easier for churches that are a little bit bigger and they have space to, you know, ensure that everyone is sitting six feet apart. But the church that I go to, mm -hmm. is, it's in a relatively smaller, um, you know, church house. So yeah, it could be a challenge. So I think it's really going to disrupt a lot of our traditional practices of just wanting to kind of sit close to each other and move down, conserve space. So yeah, I, right. I'm really looking forward to seeing like, you know, what's going to happen when churches do finally open up. Yeah, for sure. Only, only one way to find out. And we want to make sure that we're, uh, we're healthy enough to even make it to that point, especially as the uh, holidays are looming later on this year. So, you know, I, I was just curious, you know, I always think about uh, funny and non-traditional kind of applications of how we're all supposed to, you know, space ourselves out and wear masks and all of this. So it's, uh, it's just something funny to think about. But before we really get into this thing, now I'm starting to sound like a pastor when they be like, one more minute, and they just keep going. But for those who aren't as familiar with not only the article that you wrote for the Seattle Times, but even just this concept of the working unicorn and how it relates to black women being those working unicorns. Tell folks, you know, what, what about that inspired you or, and like, what is that to you? How are black women, those working unicorns? Yeah. Well, great 
question. Um, so I, I know that most people are familiar with what a unicorn looks like. Um, you know, a unicorn has, has shown up in a lot of our cultural traditions. Um, and, you know, I was kind of doing some research on the historical kind of context and placement of unicorns, but, you know, during the Middle Ages, a unicorn horn was actually said to have magical um, healing powers. And so, you know, when you say the word unicorn in kind of a contemporary context, you really think of someone who is a rarity, someone who is, you know, mythical, someone who is in uh, invincible, um, very highly valued, um, the power to heal and restore, um, someone who's innovative, um, creative, um, they think differently, you know, they're not necessarily like the, like the majority of the population. And um, I guess this, this metaphor came from, um, you know, I think in the career space, um, when we look at a lot of the, the research on, uh, you know, black women in professional positions, it, it comes from, and, and this is not meant to, to really um, offend anyone, but I think it kind of comes from this uh, kind of deficit perspective. Um, this perspective of these are the, the challenges, you know, that uh, black women are experiencing, or um, these are some of the um, barriers that black women face in, you know, fully assimilating or adjusting to a predominantly white work environment. Um, and while I think that research is very important, I mean, I think we still need to be paying attention to um, the pay inequities that black women face. Um, they're not well represented in the C-suite, um, you know, given COVID-19. We have a lot of, you know, black females um, who are um, in frontline positions. Um, unfortunately, some of them are getting laid off, they're being furloughed. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that's definitely um, research and, um, you know, facts that we still need to contend with, but I think there was kind of a missing void with um, just the value that Black women bring to the workplace. Um, I just, I, I haven't seen as much content on that. Um, you know, and I uh, come from, you know, kind of a sociology, psycholog psychological background. And so um, very much um, not only acknowledging the inequities that Black women face, but also acknowledging that um, there are different strengths that we bring into the work environment. Um, and, you know, I think when we look at a lot of our historical and contemporary figures like Madam C.J. Walker, um, that's another uh, show that I, I binge watched as well. Uh, Angela. Yeah, David. I was going to say shout out. Shout out to Madam C.J. Walker. Yeah. That was a pretty good series. Yeah, it was. I, I like how they did that. Yeah. So did I. Yeah. Uh, Angela Davis, Michelle Obama, um, just recently watched her uh, becoming a Netflix doc. Um, but these are really examples of, of black females that, you know, in spite of what was going on in terms of systemic racial and gender discrimination, they were still able to pivot. They were still able to excel, you know, in, in certain ways in their respective careers. And so I just, I wrote this article because I wanted to give life to that perspective. You know, what does it look like when black women excel and, and what are some qualities that really help us um, do so? So that was really the inspiration behind this article. 
And wow, that is, and I know we're going to even unpack that further, but that, when I was looking at the article, let me just pick on me. When, when I was first reading the article, I was like, wow, Dr. Graham is hitting on so much. And then next thing you know, I was scrolling, I was scrolling, and then the credits came on. I was like, wait, wait, but where's the rest of it and everything? So I can only imagine how much not only yourself, but even us, we could talk about this topic all day. And I'm, I'll, I'll make an assumption here in part, but, you know, I'm sure there's, there's uh, some limits when we talk about writing in the newspaper, but what you're, you're really getting at and really hitting at, it's, you know, it, it deserves to be its own seminar, its own class itself, you know, just realizing how, just generally speaking, you know, the, the value isn't always placed on black women like it should be, you know, and, and that's not just from other races and not just from other women as well, but hey, even sometimes we as black men, we, we, we don't give y'all the value for sure. And I think this, this topic here, this article that you wrote is really the tip of the iceberg. So just thinking about some of those strengths and just some of those pros that you mentioned um, in the article briefly, like what are, what are some of those main ones that we should all be aware of when we talk about what a black woman or your black woman coworker or whoever it may be about them bringing that into the workplace? What can we look forward to when someone or when we do have a black woman as a colleague or a partner or a client or however you want to put it? What are some of those strengths? Yeah, I think this is a great question because um, I think a common um, kind of theme in a lot of our workplaces is how we can be allies to other groups of people that don't necessarily look like us or hold similar identities. And so I think it's really important that, you know, if you do want to be an ally to someone else, you really, you need to know about that particular group, but also recognizing that, um, there is variation within the group. And so, you know, I wrote this from my perspective as a black female who has, you know, worked um, really, I would say only in predominantly white spaces, but um, I know that there's a lot of variation that exists and, and my experience is not representative of, of other experiences. So that's just something I wanted to tell the allies out there. And sometimes if you really want to know about someone's experience, um, have a conversation with them. Um, and, and I actually love when people do that because they're not putting me in this box of, you know, this is what I've heard about you or read about you. Um, but just some of the things, I'll just name a few. Um, so in the article, I really talked about how um, Black females are able to kind of navigate this um, dull racial and gender, you know, kind of hierarchy. Um, so they have to, um, you know, not only deal with the challenges um, with their own racial identity, you know, being a Black or an African-American individual, but they also have to deal with gender discrimination. And so if you're in a predominantly white, but also male space, you may be dealing with, um, I don't know, this is just an example, you know, males um, interrupting you uh, during a conversation or, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, or, you know, maybe, 
um, when it comes to, you know, uh, people being promoted in the workplace, you know, it's, it's constantly males being promoted because they're looked at as better leaders, more authentic leaders, um, you know, more, I guess, aggressive in their approach to seek out leadership positions. And so I think it was, it was Angela Davis who said that, you know, black women, you know, they really have to develop a larger vision of society um, and they have to do this more than any other group because they're navigating these two identities. Um, they have to understand white men, they have to understand white women and black men as well. Um, and they also have to understand themselves. And so that's, that is a very great feat and challenge for anyone to navigate. Um, and then the second one, um, this was something that I really didn't get to address um, in the article. Um, but another one is uh, black women really have to um, kind of acknowledge that their own personal and professional success is really tied to the success and liberation of their community and of their family. And, you know, we have a lot of, of a lot of black females who are, you know, raising families by themselves. And I think because we are, you know, uh, female, there is this sense of whatever you do in regards to work or your professional success, it's, it's really tied to the needs of others, you know? And, um, you know, I constantly got the message growing up, like, it's not just about you, it's about every other person, every other female coming behind you. So what legacy are you setting? What pipeline are you creating? Um, and so, you know, I think that is, while it's a heavy burden and it definitely creates a lot of stress. It, right. Definitely heavy. I just want to jump yeah. in real quick and just yeah. say, you know, shout out to all the, the moms. I know, you know, at the time of this recording, Mother's Day was not too long ago and especially, you know, the single mothers that are doing this. So just shout out to y'all because y'all are, y'all are more strong and more amazing than people uh, give you credit for for sure. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's important. Uh, and thank you for acknowledging that. Um, so yeah, while it's a burden, I think there's a lot of strength that comes from that. Um, just the resilience of, um, you know, working on the behalf of other people, um, this kind of humanistic, um, you know, I guess, persona that we have, we're seen as human working on the behalf of other people. Um, very team oriented, very community oriented, um, able to kind of decipher the needs of other people. So that would be some of the strengths that I would say. Yeah, and I, I think that you hit on so many things and, you know, there's, I'm sure there's like a thousand more you could probably, you know, mention and talk about as well. But just even one of your first points, you talked about really allyship and I'm starting to you know, get a sense and pick up things, especially in the HR space um, that I work in, how, you know, that's slowly becoming uh, more of a buzzword. And we just want to just want to make sure and I, I didn't did an episode about this all by itself. But when we think about allyship, just real quick, and I'm interested to get your take for you, what makes a bad ally? And have you had those quote unquote allies? have the best intentions, but not the best methods, any, any, uh, any missteps or anything like that you've seen 
from folks wanting to be an ally? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, so I, I would say a common, you know, misconception with allies is oftentimes people think that in order to be an ally, you really need to assume this kind of authoritarian um, approach and you really need to speak on the behalf of um, groups who have been historically marginalized. So if you're a white male, you know, you know, assuming um, this kind of authoritarian approach and kind of speaking on behalf of, you know, women or women of color is something that you need to do to be a good ally. And, you know, for me, and I will say, I, you know, I think that effort probably has really good intention, but it's really not to overshadow <laughs> people who are, um, there in your work environment who may come from historically marginalized groups, but it's really to help empower these people. And so I think you really need to take an honest look at your identity, your habits, your practices in the work environment, and how can you position people who are not from your background to you know, speak up in meetings, ensure that their perspective is heard and valued, um, I'll give a really great example, and I wrote about this in a um, Career Contessa article, but um, I was actually in a meeting, um, and it's been so long ago, I can't really recall, you know, um, the context of the meeting, but I remember um, a white male um, basically kind of stopping the meeting and saying, I think Sierra has something to say, let's listen to her. And he could kind of sense that from, you know, I was kind of like raising my hand and like, hey, you know, pick on me, um, but not doing it in an aggressive way, because I think oftentimes, you know, just being a woman or, or you know, a black female, you kind of have to watch how you approach uh, conversations. But I think, you know, something like stopping the meeting and saying, hey, I think so-and-so has something to say or just stopping the meeting and saying, hey, have we heard from everyone in the room? I think we should go around and hear what people have to say. Or talking to a senior manager and saying, you know, I think we should do a survey to kind of see what people's experiences are in this work environment. So I think if you're a person of privilege and you realize that you have a lot of, you know, pull in a work environment, it's, it's really trying to empower the voices, not necessarily take your own, you know, um, I guess, persona and identity and overshadow those perspectives. Yeah, no, and I, and I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you anymore. Like, just not only kind of listen to your experiences, but I, I even seen, and at this point, I call them bloopers, you know, nowadays, that allyship. Um, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, not just white people, but just other races who, you know, who have a lot of good intentions, but they just don't be doing it right. I, I should, you know, I should do an episode on like people do the darndest things when it comes to allyship, but it's, it's one of those things where I feel like, okay, I see what you're doing. I see your heart, maybe even your head too is in the right place. But look, we you're not doing this right. So to your earlier point, I feel like for those who want to help or be an ally, number one, I always like to say, Black people don't need saving. We're not looking for saviors. Number two, 
when we talk about being an ally and things of that nature, it is more so, and this is kind of a an analogy that I love giving, uh, partly because I remember when I lived on the East Coast and it used to snow all the time. So for me, an ally is, is someone who can help pave the way. Think about how, and I don't know if it, if it snows a lot up there um, where you're at, but think about in your mind how when a highway is covered and you have a snow plow that comes through and they're pushing out the snow, you know, trying to make it a little easier for the cars, trucks, whatever to get through. That's not to say that the road is going to be completely plowed and cleared and just as smooth as new asphalt. There will be some bumps still. It could even be a little pieces of ice in the mix, but overall, the job of the plow is to pave as much as of the red tape, the BS, the bias, the racism, you know, all of this stuff out of the way so that the hopes is that other cars, trucks, people in this case in the workplace can come behind and have a chance at that opportunity or have a chance to grow within the organization or anything that does promote that growth. So just thinking about that, you know, I feel like, and I always have to address this to people who aren't marginalized or, you know, don't have any of those issues, you know, hey, we, we want you to plow the way for us in a sense. You know, sometimes, and, I, and I've also said this, I, I like to say sometimes you got to fight white with white. And people kind of be like, huh? Or they either chuckle or have some sort of reaction. And it's, and it's one of those things where at least my experience is, you know, when you, when you do have a or a very good ally, you tend to have one who knows how to not only listen first to the person who is marginalized, but also knows how to take that information, take that vulnerability that the person just exposed themselves to talking about the realities and really channeling that in a way that when they're speaking to their colleagues or coworkers or whatever the case may be, that they're doing so in a way that doesn't call for a sympathy card to be played or, you know, woe is me or anything like that, but really just being able to provide those opportunities. So I think just saying with all that, you know, I do think it's important that we have allies for sure. Sometimes we see the methods could use some help, but needless to say, you know, I think the first step and sometimes the hardest step is having that mindset towards it. Yeah, and I think you brought up a really great point because I think what gets in the way from being a really good ally is sometimes the assumptions that those who want to be allies make. And so I think in the statement that you just said, I mean, you said a lot, which was really great, but this assumption that they need to be saviors, you know, um, I think it's, it's very, it's very harmful. And I think it's very destructive to come into any relationship with a person who comes from a historically marginalized or underrepresented background to come with this assumption that they need to be saved. Um, and it also cr creates this kind of, um, unnecessary hierarchy as well, where the person who is from kind of the dominant group becomes the savior and the other person is kind of the victim that needs to be protected. Um, so 
I would say, you know, any ally needs to, they need to be vulnerable. Um, they need to come from a position of not um, wanting to save or, or solve all the problems, but just wanting to help and wanting, wanting to listen. And I think as an ally, if you find that you're doing the majority of listening, I think that's actually um, very helpful. Um, and so, yeah, I think you said a lot of really great things, but I would say start from there as an ally, really kind of investigate what are your assumptions of people of color. And then I think oftentimes um, black people tend to get lumped into just like this, even though we are people of color, it's often like, oh, I'm going to speak on behalf of all people of color without necessarily thinking that there are different people within that umbrella. Um, and so I just want to make sure that allies, you know, when they're saying that, oh, I'm speaking on behalf of people of color, that they're really investigating, again, the, the variation that exists because we're not all the same. And I think even within a group like, you know, Black or African Americans, we're very different. Um, and so I, I think just paying attention to the variation that exists is important. No, I agree with that for sure. And see, this is why I did an episode on ally, being an ally or allyship all by itself, because I can literally go on and on about that topic for days. But I want to kind of talk about one thing that stood out to me in the article that you did write. And I got I to gotta have you to talk about this and give us really your insight on this. In your article, you said, we need more women leaders who can unapologetically walk in their power and to not be called out for doing so. Doc, what does really walking in one's power look like? And do we, and when I say we, not only just for minorities, but black women specifically, do, do they, do y'all, however you want to put it, have issues walking in your own power without facing any kind of stereotypes, you know, angry black woman, things of that nature. What does that look like? Great question. Um, so, you know, employers, I think they're always looking for leaders who are, who are competent, who can make decisions, uh, make efficient, quick decisions, um, not be, a, you know, I guess, to an extent, apologetic about the decisions that they make. They need to be willing to stand behind the decisions, defend the decisions. I mean, you know, we can go on and on about how much um, of a value it is to have someone in your workplace who can just really be authentic and, you know, say what they mean and mean what they say. I mean, I think we can all agree that that is um, a quality that we would want regardless of who is the leader, whether they're a male, female, black, white, you know, whatever, or, you know, any other identities that they must possess. Um, but I think, you know, with black women, I mean, walking in our power, it's, it's always something that we've held as a value. You know, we recognize that being able to be ourselves and be authentically ourselves um, is not only a form of self-care, radical self-care, um, but it's also a form of, you know, our own kind of liberation and the liberation of our community. But um, 
I think it's hard. It's, it's very hard to do this, you know, in a predominantly white space, especially in a space where there is a homogenous culture and um, other cultural practices may not be embraced. Um, I think even something as simple as hair, and I say simple because I think hair is very simple. I mean, it's, I just don't really think it's something that we should be evaluating as a uh, trait for whether or not someone is qualified or their readiness to be in a position, but it's caused a lot of contention in the workplace, um, how black females wear their hair. Um, you know, I've uh, read articles, um, especially um, a lot of articles around beauty standards and what's considered um, I guess, uh, normal beauty in the workplace. And that's having straight hair, not embracing your natural hair. And so when we talk about work, kind of walking in your authentic power, um, it's very hard for, for black women to be able to do this when there's all this kind of discrimination about how we present ourselves. Um, and, and it's a challenge, but I think it, it's important that we are in workplaces that allow us to do this and they embrace it because I think it's going to create um, better work culture. I think it's going to lead to other employees being more open-minded, um, embracing other people's identities and how they choose to express their own authenticity in the workplace. Um, but yeah, like you said, I think there's, there's a lot of challenges there that, um, really stop us from being able to do that. Now, Doc, I got to ask you real quick, how many, if any, white folks have either touched your hair or asked you or said something weird about your hair in your own experiences? <laughs> so for me, um, you know, <laughs> so I was at the airport, this, this happened a while ago, but it was such a, I guess, a traumatic experience that it still stuck out in my mind. So I was actually at an airport um, and the, um, I guess the TSA person who was at security after I had walked through, um, you know, the security kind of kind of door, um, they basically wanted to know if they could touch my hair. And it was another female asking this question and, and she was a white female. And I was a little bit, um, oh, um, I, I felt uneasy. I felt very shocked. Um, I just thought, why are we um, at this point in society where we have to start kind of in, infringing or, or touching people's kind of bodies, you know, to kind of, um, you know, ensure that they're not being, you know, criminal or, or not suspicious. Um, but I let her do it because I think that obviously there's consequences in, you know, refusing <laughs> that request. Um, but it felt weird. It felt invasive. Um, but um, I'm someone, I tend to experiment a lot with uh, different highlights in my hair. Um, and so I've done like red, uh, burgundy, um, and I've, I've been without a relaxer for a while, but I do get my hair uh, pressed, you know, every couple weeks. Um, so I wear my hair kind of um, straight down. Um, but just even the um, remarks that I get when I make very small changes to my hair color, it's like, oh my God, you look like a new person. You look so different. 
Um, and I just wish that there wasn't such a focus on hair. And it's not just hair. I wish, you know, if we just didn't focus on people's, you know, outward appearance at all. But um, I understand we're all visual people. You know, it's kind of what meets the eye, what attracts the eye. But um, yeah, I've, that question has come up quite a bit, you know. Um, and I've actually been told by someone, you know, don't ever change your hairstyle because I may not be able to recognize you. Um, and, and that's like, okay, would you say that to someone who wasn't a, a you know, a black female? Um, but yeah, it's hair and, you know, black women. I mean, that's just something that we have had to navigate for so long. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I totally not only hear it, but also have seen it in action and get it now, of course, not just even picking on, you know, black women's hairs, but, you know, we can, you know, I could also get started on how, you know, sometimes as black men, we get that too, especially if we have dreads or beards or anything like that. And you were, you were hinting that, and I definitely did an episode on this before, but your, your responses to your situations that you just talked about was slathered with so much uh, and so many microaggressions that it's, it's crazy and I'm not going to get on that but you know it's 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 funny how going back to what we were saying earlier you know be having the the best intentions sometimes but the methods don't play out now there was one thing that you said and I was like huh I gotta come back to that wait a second hold on now you said and I just want to make sure you said there were consequences for saying no to letting someone, a white woman in your example, in your case, saying no to her touching your hair? Yeah, so that was when I was at the airport. And um, uh, yeah, so I think just given that context and having someone in that position, again, recognizing that the person is of authority, you know. Okay, they were like a TSA agent or something. They were, yes. Uh, Okay, I was like, I was like, wait a minute, there's consequences for not letting people in your hair? Okay, all right, you, all right, there we go. She was a TSA agent. She was a TSA agent, but I, I mean, I think this is a good question, though, you know, Matt, because even though, even though this situation was at an airport, I think there's still some consequences for Black females defending their right not to have their hair touched in a predominantly white workspace. And the reason that I believe this, and not everyone is going to agree with me, so I understand that, but, um, you know, I think when you are a token in a work environment, and when I say token, you're basically, you're a, you're a numerical rarity, so you're one of very few in the work environment, um, there's often this pressure to always be on, always be constantly accessible and available. Um, and with that comes you know, the need to have other people access you, your time and your space. I'm not, and I'm not saying this is right because I don't believe it is, but um, I think there could be some consequences if, you know, a, a black female was approached by someone who was not black and said, can I touch your hair? And, and the black female said, no. I mean, again, I do believe the black female should no I mean you should protect your body and you know your property but um, I think just given 
kind of the systemic inequities that go on in predominantly white spaces, saying no is very difficult. And I think there's repercussions for saying no, because what does that no symbolize? Especially to someone who has to constantly be on, be accessible, and be available to other people in their work environment. Interesting. No, I, 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 like, I like your take on that. Like, you know, maybe even after we get through with this recording and show, I, I'd be I'd be interested in uh, doing a continuation of um, and folks. Here's here's a sneak peek. Here's a little giblet. But um, you know, in the future, I will be doing a uh, mini series entitled called something to the effect of "Don't Touch My Hair." That's going to be the name of the series. So I'm a, I'm gonna put a, I'm gonna put a pin on that. But I like your take on that, and I'm. I'm interested to to get into some of those uh, consequences that you mentioned for sure and what the impact and the symbolism of saying no to someone like that. So no, that's that's a good point. You know, I like that. That that makes me more curious to get into that subject. But I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna save it for another episode for sure. But just thinking about and thinking back to you know, black women being unicorns in the workplace while we can continue to talk on this like forever in a day i feel like what are what are some of those things that you want folks who read your article and i'll post this in the show notes y'all for those who listening but you know what do you want folks to take away from not only your article but also be able to realize and respect of life women being those working unicorns what are what are some of those things that people can live with or leave with yeah so i th i think that's a great question i think one of them is to um you know start looking at uh you know black females and kind of the black female experience from a very strengths-based perspective what is it that black women bring that is of value to the workplace um so i kind of talked about you know navigating um you know this dull um gender and race um kind of systemic inequality um being very authentic in our workplaces walking in our power um i think when you take a look at um the me too movement you know that exists as well as the black lives matter movement black females have really been the originators of these movements um, we're essentially we're the originators of of change and so i think that's important to acknowledge um, but for those who are employers um, you know i do have a, a couple tips because really this isn't just about you know you recognizing the value of black females in the workplace, but it's really about how you can help them feel connected. Um, you know, I thought coming into a kind of adult professional workplace, you know, clicks would just end, but clicks are very still prevalent um, in a lot of workplaces. And so I think it's important that, you know, employers and supervisors, very, they, they find culturally inclusive activities to engage in. Um, 
So, you know, oftentimes it's not going to the only Irish pub in your neighborhood. It's maybe going to a spoken word or a jazz event or, you know, maybe talking to your employees to see what type of events or activities they might want to engage in. Um, don't be afraid to have um, conversations about race and gender in your workplace. Um, I think oftentimes there's this perception, and this kind of goes beyond professional workplaces, but there's this perception that any time that you are talking about race, it has to be controversial or has to be, you know, very secretive or you can't really be honest and forthcoming. But um, I, for one, as a black female who has studied race and gender inequalities as a sociologist, I actually love when people talk openly about race and gender. And even if that means talking about your own biases, um, I, you know, I actually find that um, very therapeutic. And so I think those conversations need to happen. Um, and then I think we also need to, um, you know, for those of us who are in hiring, you know, positions, we need to really praise black females more. Um, and, and I think just women in general, but um, especially black females, because I think oftentimes they don't get the praise that's needed. Um, but, you know, anytime that someone has done a great job, I think there's a difference between telling them that in an email or in a one-on-one -on -one conversation versus telling that in a public space where there's other colleagues, um, you know, present. So I think anytime that managers are able to do that, they need to, because I think it, it just helps kind of build reinforcement. Like, oh, this person is doing a really great job. This is what it takes to do a really great job. Um, and then I think it says something, you know, especially if you're a manager who's coming from a majority background, praising, you know, um, someone who is historically underrepresented. And, and I think that type of um, modeling needs to be shown a lot more in our workplaces. No, and you're, and you're so right. And I know that, you know, sometimes, and definitely not speaking on behalf of any other races or anything like that, but just that kind of topic and being open and vulnerable and, you know, really accounting and thinking about your own biases. I mean, that could be a lot to ask, but it's, it's so needed today i mean the reasons at this point is it's just obvious why we need to have these tougher conversations so that we can collectively move forward you know it's, it's one of those things where we gotta we gotta challenge some of these systems that are in place some of these biases that are in place and the only way one of the only ways we're going to do it is we gotta talk about it and before we get out of here you know i want to leave my listeners with one of the things that you said in your article that stood out to me, but consider this for those who are listening, consider this statement right here. We need an America that aims to not only hire, but promote, care for, and protect Black women. Until then, we will keep being magical. And I think just reading that, of course, for the first time when I read this article, but even just hearing it, and you writing it, I think that's I think that's true. Now that's the tall order for America, you know. So y'all might have to keep being magical for a little while longer, but you know, I'll I'll remain um optimistic that of course things will continue to change, but also 
there'll be that shift. So I just want to thank you for, you know, not only deciding to jump on and just talking about this working unicorn concept, but really making it practical and getting not only my listeners, but anyone else who may hear this or who may read your article, really breaking it down in a practical way that they'll understand it. So thank you, Dr. Graham, for that article. You know, I hope you keep pumping out more and more of them. And I might even have to start subscribing to the Seattle Times, you know, and I'm all the way in Cali. So, but if you pumping out content like this, you know, definitely going to have to check out, check out the newspaper up there. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I try to write from not only this perspective of being a black female, but also um, being a millennial. Um, I just turned 30. Or, um, so still, uh, you know, in the millennial generation, um, right. being a young leader, um, you know, serving on nonprofit boards, you know, for those of you who may be thinking about joining a board, um, and you're very passionate about diversity and inclusion, you know, how do you ensure that your board is really paying attention to those issues? So I try to write against or, or write on, I guess, um, you know, a wide spectrum of issues. So, so thank you. Really, really happy to be here. And it's been great. Yeah, no worries. But before we get out of here, where can people find you? How can they connect with you? How can they reach out to you if they want to keep the conversation going? Yeah, great question. So um, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is uh, Sierra Graham, PhD. And then I also have a website um, where you can learn a little bit about me and see some of my work, including um, the Seattle Times article that was referenced um, in this podcast and other articles that I've written. Um, so that is sierragram.com. And then I'm also on LinkedIn, um, Dr. Sierra Graham. So um, please, please connect with me. Um, one thing that I really appreciated about um, just being a columnist with the Seattle Times is just the people that reach out to me and say, wow, your article has, has spoke to me and my experiences. And so I just, I really um, love to hear that there's an audience out there who enjoys uh, reading my work. And no, y'all, y'all just listen, y'all heard it. You know, she's approachable, she's kind, she loves talking about the, the tough issues that needs to be talked about and discussed. And there's numerous ways that you can reach out to her. And if you're listening to this show for the very first time, when in doubt, please look us up on several social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, group me if you're on there, at Honest Human Resources Podcast. Our Twitter is at Honest HR Podcast. But y'all know, if y'all get something to this act of honest, and human resources, nine times out of 10, I'm a pop-up. Why? Because I check. So when in doubt, feel free to look us up, join the conversation, subscribe to the show, interact with our guests, especially if you're in the, the group me group, and that's at Honest Human Resources Podcast. If you have any suggestions, want to see any topics in particular being spoken and talked about, any guests that you know of who could really be a value add to the show, don't hesitate. Send me an email. You guessed it. Honest Human Resources Podcast at gmail.com. 
But until then, y'all know how we do. We're going to keep the conversation going. We're going to talk about, continue to talk about many different topics. And again, thank you, Dr. Graham, for joining the show. And I can't wait to do it again. And let's move this conversation forward. All right. Bye, everyone. All right. Bye, y'all. We'll talk to y'all again.